You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Angela Slatter is the author of the supernatural crime novels Vigil, Corpse Light, and Restoration. Her other books include The Girl with No Hands and Other Tales, Sourdough and Other Stories, The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recountings, The Tallow Wife and Other Tales, and her new novel is All the Murmuring Bones. Thank you for joining me, Angela. Oh, more than welcome. I'm sorry for all those long titles. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be, because I think what you're doing here, particularly with the sourdough novels, we'll call them that, or Lydellen, is that the... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, sourdough world is what I, I generally call it. Okay. Um, I think these are some really remarkable books, and your sense of story and storytelling just stand out and are really amazing. Uh, so, tell us uh, when you. How did you first encounter the world that you set all these stories in? Oh gosh, I mean, I've <clears throat> always been a huge reader, like you know most of our people, and um, uh, and and a huge fairy tale fan. So you know, Mum always was reading us fairy tales as kids. So that was. And then when I was old enough to read for myself, I was, you know, that's where I was reading. That's what I was doing. Um, and then when I started writing, I was doing, uh, for, for serious, for real, uh, I was doing a master's and I, my tutor said, why don't you try a fairy tale? Because I was rewriting a fairy tale. And the first one I rewrote was uh, The Little Match Girl, which is probably my uh, the most traumatic one from childhood, you know, remembering re- having that read to me for the first time and bawling my eyes out. Um, and that was kind of where it started, was was picking apart a fairy tale in that way and then rewriting it. And I think of the sourdough stories as being the next step, step from there, which is using fairy tale elements, but combining them in my own way rather than you know still sort of sticking with the um sticking with the the backbone just doing something different so the first well literally the the first sourdough story was a story called sourdough so (laughs) it did what it said on the can um which is just a brief story that has some elements of uh the goose girl in it um and donkey skin um and i i imagine this this city which was uh sort of a medieval city built around a, a tower built around a square um and very neat uh, other squares cantons within the city uh but within that it was all it was all fairy tale and it was all chaos and magic and madness uh so that was kind of how i started and i i gradually was writing other stories that felt like they were in the same world. Uh, and eventually I got to the point where I went, oh, there's just, you know, there's 16 stories there. Um, they, they probably fit together. And I had pitched 
well, I'd, I'd, I'd had a couple of stories published with Tartarus Press uh, in their Strange Tales anthologies. And I approached Roz and Ray and said, look, are you interested in having a look at this collection? And they said yes. And to my delight and surprise, they, uh, they made an offer on it. So that was how that first Sourdough and Other Stories book came out. Uh, and I had only thought of it as a, a, a one-off, one-off book. But then I, I started to get other stories coming through. And I think the next one uh, that ended up being one of the main ones in the Bitterwood Bible <clears throat> was The Coffin Maker's Daughter, which won the British Fantasy Award. Uh, and I... And people kept publishing them, so it just sort of it was foolish because it, it just encouraged me to keep going. And um, <laughs> and here we are. So. You know, one of the things that really intrigues me is that when I read uh, Sourdough and the Bitterwood Bible and the Tyler Wife, uh, you get the feeling that what you're writing is a is, uh, not just a selection of one-off kind of short stories, but what's called a mosaic novel, yeah. where you're we're seeing different like still pictures that tell whole stories from this place that nobody has ever visited but you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that uh, the the putting those together for the reader is really pleasurable and seeing the different elements that recur and the different characters that recur. And it's a, a storytelling style that's really intriguing because it's easy to digest each of the single parts, but putting them together in your mind as a reader is really fun. So I'd like you to talk. Is it fun for you as a writer to do that? To, to like, yeah, <laughs> it absolutely is. And I'm, I'm, like for a start, I'm fascinated by the way fairy tales shift and change over time, and how they recur over the world through different cultures. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I, I would like to think I was tapping into, um, and also the element of of gossip and rumor that moves through those tales. So you'll have uh, one character who's a who's a uh, who's a point of view character in a, a first-person story in one story, and then a few stories later they'll be seen as a secondary character by someone else, and it's at a different point in their life. So I always think that's really fascinating that it's it's a way of um, sort of sneaking up on your characters and getting other, <clears throat> other details about them from someone else's point of view. So, you know, that you've got a character who's saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a good guy, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Then you have four other people looking and going, no, not quite so good. Uh, so I think it makes for a really rich, um, rich kind of storytelling. <clears throat> um, and things that I was, I was doing when I uh, – because I, I wrote – sourdough first and then I thought I would I thought I would do Bitterwood as a sequel but as I wrote because um the, the character of Hepzibah Ballantyne who's the coffin maker's daughter was such a strong uh recurring character through that second collection I realized that she had actually been referred to in sourdough um as a, a name on a headstone so 
by the time you know I, she got to sourdough, she was she was dead. So I had to go back, and it became a prequel, despite my will. So that was sort of so with that one, I had to be thinking, all right, well, what do I, what do I want to start laying down as kind of the almost the prehistory of sourdough. And then when I got <clears throat> to the Tallow Wife, I had uh, certain arcs and characters that I, I wanted to sort of finish off and, and give a, you know, give a, a, a good a good send-off to, uh, like, Ella from The Shadow Tree. And so I was working out what they'd been doing for a few hundred years and what elements I wanted to start weaving in, who had they been in contact with. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and when I wrote All the Murmuring Bones, which is the, sort of the first novel, proper proper novel, not a, a false false novel, a, a, you know, a mosaic novel, um, I, I wanted to have this crossover between some of the, the, uh, the Tallow Wife characters um, just on the sort of the periphery of that one, which is why you see Bethany Lawrence um, in her years as the, uh, the robber queen uh, the Queen of Thieves in the Sea of Breakwater. Um, so that basically I am keeping myself amused and it's just great that other people are are enjoying that as well. Um, and I'm, I'm very aware that it becomes quite complex, uh, but I like to think of it as a series of Easter eggs for readers who, you know, will be going, oh, no, wait a minute, that's Patience Sykes, you know, who was back here and she was the witch and she killed all these people and she turned her husband to a, into a wolf. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and, so, and, you know, particularly Patience also has occurred in a novella called Of Sorrow and Such that I did for tour a few years back. Um, and now I have, uh, well, I'm, I'm working on The Path of Thorns, which is the second novel version for Titan of this uh, and it's sort of Jane Eyre meets Frankenstein uh, set in the sourdough world. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, so, so who knows what happens after that but uh, you know picking picking little bits from previous previous narratives to sort of you know highlight here and give readers a sense of continuity um, and, and just the little things they can pick out and go, ooh, ooh, yes, yes, I remember that bit. So, you know, yeah. one of the things I really like about that is it, it doesn't, it's not just Easter eggs and continuity, it's depth. It gives your books a, a multidimensional feel. They feel really deep, like there's always something else in there that's waiting for us. Um, as a writer, when you, one of the things that I really love about your books is your prose. It's really beautiful, and it's very low-key. I mean, you're, you're never, like, uh, dragging out the tension or, or you know, overwriting the, the description. You, you hit this really nice middle point. I'm wondering, does that prose just uh, spill forth from your pen? <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, I always say with writing, if it looks effortless, then you can you can, you know, imagine how much blood, sweat, tears, and a lot of swearing went into making it look <laughs> look effortless. Um, I, uh, I I also teach for the Australian Writers Centre, and and one of the things I'm at 
pains to to get students to understand is that you need to find the right words. So just because you are throwing four or five different descriptions at an item or a setting or a person doesn't mean you're telling the reader about them. Sometimes you're just making a real mess and the writing can't breathe. So um, for me, and because I think this is largely because when I started writing, I started short stories. So um, what was really impressed upon me at the time when I, you know, my teachers were showing me what to do, um, was the need to find the right word and the right word would often be simple. so if you're, you know, and I talk, I talk a lot about the difference between $5 words and $0.05 words. So if you have too many $5 words and they're all jammed up together, no one's going to notice them because they won't stand out. It's like more you know, sequins on top of more sequins, which looks pretty, but none of them stand out. But if you've got a single sequins on a, a field of black, it'll stand out. People will see it. They will notice it. So, you know, frame your frame your $5 words and your $5 descriptions amongst a lot of simple language that just carries the message and carries the story. Uh, and I think that level of clarity is really important for a reader um, in their understanding of the story and also in their enjoyment. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think I, I do, you know, I do spend a lot of time crafting uh, my my work and um, emphasising to people that, you know, this is, this is not easy and your first draft is never going to be your last draft. Uh, as, I've, as I've done this longer and longer, because I think I'm entering my 17th year of, of doing this, um, I do fewer drafts, so maybe I have learned something. I would like to think that I have, and maybe some of those things have gotten a bit easier. Uh, but I'm, um, yeah, it's it's never easy. That's the thing. Angela, you know, one of the things that you said that really intrigued me was that you started out by kind of rewriting um, standard issue fairy tales. And, yeah. you know, that really reminded me of something that that I used to do um, in playing music, if I want if I wanted to do a new song, I'd say, "Well, I'm just going to try to rip off this old Kraftwerk song," yeah. and, and guarantee you, it sounds nothing like Kraftwerk afterwards. But <laughs> the the idea is that when you try to quote rip off somebody, you can often just gives you a way to strut out and do your own thing, and I think that's a really interesting way to work. Yeah, and it's um, oh, I can't, I, I cannot remember who gave me the the piece of advice, but it was about uh, trying to get through writer's block. So if you really felt that you couldn't get uh, you know, your own stuff on the page, pick your favorite book, open it at the first page, rekey that first page, and then when you get to the bottom, don't turn over, start telling the story as if it's your own. Obviously, you can't publish it, but it uh, it can just loosen your brain up, your writing brain up, and it can also help you see what someone else has done in terms of their writing technique. 
uh, it's a bit like working with clay. I think you know if you're if you're it's it's the way that we get to work with the, the clay of the words and and see exactly how they work and feel how they work. Uh, so that's one of those useful tips, I think, if you're sort of going, oh, well, how did, how did Kelly Link do that? You know, apart from the fact she's a genius, how did she actually do it? So just retyping uh, the, the, you know, the paragraph or the sentence that, that she has, that she's written, and you'll, you'll get a feel for it, I think. Um, you, can, you can always ask Kelly Link, you know, and she'll, she'll give you an answer, but most writers don't give you know, good, uh, accurate, precise answers. We tend to ramble because <laughs> no one's editing us for a change. So, <laughs> but I do, yeah, I, I, I have always found that a really uh, useful thing to do. And I, and years ago, I, I do remember Kelly saying that if you, with if you're trying to rewrite something, one of the easiest things to do is to take a fairy tale shape take the spine of it and write from that but then start putting different limbs on it you know your own your own limbs so you're sort of frankensteining a story uh but you're making it your own you know um in terms of fairy tales that's a really interesting storytelling style uh i once spoke with an anthropologist who had studied uh fairy tales and what she called them were warning stories and, yes. and I think that one of the things that's interesting is that um, one of the dangers of fantasy, I think, of writing fantasy, is that you can find yourself sidelined in a world and telling all these things that, that are kind of exciting to read but instantly forgettable for the reader once you come yeah. back to you know the life that's around you. With your books um, and your stories, I find that the fairy tale structure is always relevant because it's always kind of the same distance. And what you really do well with that structure is to follow the emotional truth as opposed to the where the plot wants you to lead. So talk about um, creating these stories that ring really emotionally true both to their setting but also to people sitting here in the 21st century thinking, well, the world's going to end any day now. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, well, you know, due, due to my age, I, I also lived through the 80s where we all thought the world was going to end because, you know, the Russians are going to bomb us, and which is, you know, the, our version of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're all just having exactly the same experience because, you know, history's a circle, let's face it. So... Um, uh, I just I just think that our emotions are the things that connect us. So if I can create, recreate with my words, uh, a feeling or a situation that another that a reader is going to read and understand why the experience is making the character feel and act the way they do, then there's going to be a deep connection with the story so um while i i always have quite strong ideas about the plot and and where everyone's moving across the story the big thing for me is always the character and what do they want because if i know what they want then i know what they'll do i know where they'll move i know where uh what wonderful things they'll do to get the object that they want 
and what terrible things they'll do. Um, I'm also like the themes that I return to are I'm fascinated by uh when we do a terrible thing we ha we haven't really thought it through but we're we're in pain and we just want someone else to hurt and we just want to have that thing that we want whatever it is uh and i'm also fascinated by consequences and can you ever make amends for what you've done in your life uh if you can what is the cost to you and I think those are really strong uh, threads through all my writing. And I think people, readers generally just uh, identify with that. Um, and also the idea of home and found family, what it's like to lose your home, what it's like to find it again, um, what it's like to recreate the family that is the family you need rather than the family you were born with. Um, so I think those are just very uh, universal themes that a lot of lot of readers will connect with. Um, and the with the other one of the other things for me with writing the the creating the fairy tale world was that it it looked a lot like ours. So there was a lot that was familiar there for the reader. So I didn't have to spend too much time telling them this is how the world works at a base level. Uh, so they would accept it and be comfortable in it. And then I could throw in the magic. I could throw in those different elements that sort of made them go, oh, oh, something's new, something's different. Here is this, here is a, with sourdough in particular, here is this baker who uh, can use her skills ultimately to do magic, uh, to, to change her world, to fix things for herself. Um, so, yes. So I'm not sure I answered that question, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, um, also, I don't think anybody can read your stories without noticing that unlike 99.9% uh, .9 of fantasy, uh, the men are not the centerpiece of your stories. They, they are fully ensconced somewhere on the side. They, they do pop up, but... Yeah. The, I think that, would you call your work feminist? Yes, yes, I am. So <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it's definitely feminist stories. You know, it, it's about um, women's lives and how we manage them and also the, I think, a lot of the natural rage that comes through uh, in being uh sidelined or told that you can only have this role or if you are a woman that a man is afraid of something must be done about you uh you know generally involving either <laughs> drowning you or, or sending you to the fires um which is why I, I deal a lot with with witches in my story or women who are perceived as witches um but again the the important thing for me is to get the story there. So this, the story is paramount. Uh, the themes, you know, uh, the feminist themes are definitely there. Uh, I remember China Mievel saying years ago that he wasn't trying to smuggle communism into people's houses. You know, it was just, it was there as part of his books. And if they, they read it, then, you know, that, that was where it was. 
Um, uh, again, you know, I'm not trying to smuggle feminism into your house because it's very obviously there. <laughs> there is no smuggling. So <laughs> no, no, and I think it's interesting to uh, read stories about you know the power and dominion of where that's that uh, under a matriarchy, not a patriarchy. And so, talk about you know the tradition that this comes from. Fantasy is really a male-dominated, war-oriented. Everything is always heading towards a war. Yeah, you know, and I. <laughs> Uh, and there's not too many wars in your books, which is really rather nice, nor are there any scenes of endless soldiers charging each other with swords and cutting each other, any of that. Uh, I really like the sen- your sense of, of plotting because even though the stories are set in a world with all sorts of supernatural appliances and, and supernatural char- characters who have supernatural abilities, what happens in them? The actual stories themselves feel like things that could happen in our world without the magic things or the magic being replaced by a, a piece of technology. Yeah. Um, gosh, I hadn't I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in giant battles, you know, and, and that. Um, you know, am that, I that, actually? That's, <laughs> and that that. You know you, that that uh, area of fantasy, the epic fantasy. You know, there's there's another war soon to follow. You know, the war we just had, and then we're taking the war on the road, and there'll be some more war. Um, you know, there there are readers who love that, and that is fantastic. If they're reading, fantastic, keep reading. But as a writer. I am interested in uh, the consequences of war because people still have to live afterwards. So in, um, you know, in Sourdough in particular, I think I, I talk about, you know, the, the battle abbeys that were once, uh, once much more active and, you know, and, and used to go out and have fights. Uh, there's, there are the, um, in... Uh, one in Bitterwood, the St. Dymphna's School for Poison Girls. Um, there's a reference to, I know, lots of long titles. <laughs> no, that's a, I'm just thinking that that's one of my favorite stories. It's just really amazing. It's, it's one of mine too, you know, and I, I, it, it, it just came from the idea of, because the you know, books always feature in, in my books, uh, the idea of a poisoner's Bible, you know, and, and these, these books that are, are the result of a lot of people recording information and ideas. Uh, and I thought, well, how, how would someone get that? How would someone, you know, get this piece of information? Um, but the, the two characters in there, Orla and Fidelma, who run the, the school teaching, bless you, teaching young women to, um, to be to be assassins, uh, they come from, you know, uh, they're the daughters of a great general. So, you know, there's a reference to the, a war in the past there as well. Um, and I just, you know, I just think the consequences of war are um, much more long-lasting and they do affect women and children a lot more than anyone else uh, because they're, again, they're sidelined. Um, 
generally they don't fight, but they do end up having to deal with the consequences. Um, so again, that's that's of interest to me. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I have, you know, up on the blocks at the moment is a um, a novel called The Crimson Road, which would uh, tell the early story of Orla and Fidelma, you know, the the, the lady assassins. Um, how they came to be so there would be a bit of war in that which is going to be a huge challenge for me if I if I write the book <laughs> like, oh now I have to do fight scenes so, <laughs> so um and what I I'm always really wary of fight scenes because I I see so much student work which they they think they're writing a marvel film uh, which, you know, is a 10, 15-minute thing on the screen, which is boring enough, let's face it, but then there's a 30-page action scene. So... Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's in-action scene. <laughs> in-action scene, exactly. So you have to sort of gird your loins and say, okay, let's have a talk about this. <laughs> Instead of rolling your eyes, throwing your hands in the air and going, oh, my God, not this again. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to retire. So, <laughs> well, you know, this is something that I wanted, kind of wanted to, to talk about, and it sounds like you're a good person to talk with it about, is uh, somebody was recently lamenting with the about the abuse of the term world building. Yes. And, and, and my thought was that as when the... MCU, I shall not say what that abbreviation means, was first created. It was the death knell to the usefulness of that term. And, <laughs> and, and when I read your your books, uh, I don't think feel get the feeling that you're trying to build a world. I, I get the feeling that that world has always existed, and, and I don't really think of it that way. I don't say, oh, here's the part where she describes this, and this is how this influences yep. society. So I, I think that you work from a much, you know, a, a gut level in terms of creating a world. <laughs> so that that's the reason where, at, for example, at the beginning of the, the murmuring bone, all the murmuring bones. Yeah. You have this lovely description of a city that has fallen into decay and a family that's fallen into decay. I mean, you could be describing Detroit in the eighties or something, yeah. <laughs> or or, or or New York in the seventies. So, and I think that the you tap into things at a lower but much more universal level. So, uh, talk about how you approach the idea of creating a, a written space where readers can explore a world that is not their own, but feels like their own when they're in it. So, yeah. Okay, I, I do not underestimate how lazy I am. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> Laziness? Uh, I am lazy, man. <laughs> That's my special superpower. <laughs> I'm very lazy, uh, which is why my my <laughs> I, I'm I'm very lazy. Um, I'm a history nerd. Um, I'm a you know uh, uh, my my most fascinating times for me are, are Renaissance 
medieval and then a little bit of Victoriana. So those are, are influences you will largely notice in all my stories that I kind of, it's the place where I get to jam everything together. Uh, so, so readers will notice and recognise we've all got a degree of cultural capital for things that we have seen. So if I, if I say to a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the, the London of Jack the Ripper, they will get a picture in their, their head based on all of the Jack the Ripper movies that have ever been made. Uh, so it will suddenly, you'll suddenly go, oh, yeah, yeah. And everyone, it'll be different, but there'll be points of similarity. So fog, uh, you know, prostitutes on the street, men in carriages, uh, you know, all of those, those looming buildings, the, the, the narrow alleyways, that kind of thing. So I'm... As a writer, I want to be able to tap into that so I don't have to reinvent the wheel and say, oh, hey, well, you know, look at this. This is how it all looks. Um, and I think I think one of the uh, one of the places I learned that, you know, as a, a reader and then applied as a writer myself was from Neil Gaiman because he will introduce you to the, the ordinary world first uh, and get you comfortable. Uh, there's one, I think, Harlequin Heart. Uh, you, you're in a diner. You, you are in a recognisable diner, and everyone goes, "Oh yes, I'm in a diner. I'm comfortable here. I recognise this." You don't, you don't have to tell me every detail of the diner because I can imagine something, you know. Uh, but then he starts to introduce the little strange elements that make you know that the world is off its axis slightly in this place. Uh, so that's that's one of the techniques I'm I'm going to use. But uh, like Lodellen is going to read like a medieval city uh, built around uh, built around a cathedral and a um, and a and a, a palace. Uh, and as it you know as you get further out from that area. The, the buildings become poorer, the people become poorer. And then this, these are the places, I think I've said in one story, where rats share cradles with babies. So you have in the centre, you know, because churches traditionally always took the highest land, the best land in a city, uh, and then everything sort of rolls down from there. Uh, so people can recognise those details. Uh, and I, I'm often referencing uh, history anyway or, or historical architecture, so people will recognise that. Uh, so what's already there I use. Then I add the magic to it and my characters and I put them in this place, which is which exists in my head but sometimes other people get to visit. Um, so as a writer, that's the sort of thing I'm doing is, is saying, all right, what what exists, what can I add to it, how do I make it different, how do I make it mine? Because um, one of the other series I've written is called uh, Vigil Vigil Series with Verity Fassbinder and it's set in modern-day Brisbane where I live, uh, but it's an urban fantasy. So the challenge there is to say, okay, here is the landscape, here's, here's the built environment that I live in, what do I add to it to make it different? Um, and there's a, a scene towards the individual where there's a fight between angels and sirens uh, 
on a yard, you know, on on the, the yard of a small church from the 1800s up on the cliffs. Um, so I, I wrote that there. I wrote that scene and found out later on that it was actually the church where one of my uncles got married many years ago. So it's um, uh, and a, a friend I was with at the time looked at one of the the walls that's a bit broken. Said, "Oh, it looks like there used to be a room there." And so, of course, my writer brain's gone scampering off to, oh, oh, there used to be a room. Yes, you're right. There used to be a room there. There has to be. How can I use this in a story? Mm. So I did use that in the story. So um, we're kind of scavengers or wombles, really, as writers. And we're just, you know, we're, we're looking at what's there. What, what can we use? And then what can we make on top of it to make it our own? You'd add, you take from pieces of different mythologies from our world. Are there specific mythologies to which you're referring? Are there books that you use? Do you research or do you make this stuff up and then go back and, and retcon it into something that exists? Um, I think, like, for me, the, the stories of my childhood were yeah, European. Uh, my, you know, my family's from you know Irish background as you can see with all the memory bones that was what I I was really riffing on there with all the memory bones is is that you know kind of Irish mythology uh Scottish Welsh English there's some French there's some German there's some Danish there's a bit of Portuguese so I I will be picking bits and pieces from uh from there there's there's a huge amount of information in my own head from years and years of reading uh it's it's a very messy cupboard in there so i can sort of wander through and pick things off the shelves um but if i'm uh looking for something <clears throat> new i mean i i already with all the memory bones i already had a fair stock of mermaid um literature mermaid um you know mermaid mythology in there but i would you know look through my books my different you know, books on mythology and folklore and that sort of thing and see if there was you know if i was it was looking for something specific i would look through there and see what i could find that fit for the story um at the moment with uh, the Path of Thorns, I'm <clears throat> looking for stories involving wolves and werewolves and that kind of thing. So I'm I'm picking through my own mythology that I've already written because one of the things that I really wanted to do with uh, All the Memory Bones and, again, with uh, The Path of Thorns is have a lot of the stories that I've told in this world feel like they're the mythology for the characters so that these are the right, stories. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so these are the stories that, um, that they grew up with. Like, you know, I had the fairy tales I grew up with. So these are the fairy tales I'm giving them to grow up with. Uh, and particularly all the memory bones. It's, it's, um, it's a big part of how Mirren navigates the world. So someone's told her, you know, fairy tales and folk tales that help her along uh, in her life. So when she's um, faced by three ghosts at a gallows one night, 
she knows the form of how to deal with them. You know, she's still in danger, but she knows ways to stay safe, uh, you know, because someone has told her this fairy tale. Um, so, again, I think that that uh, harks back to what you were saying about them being warning tales. Um, and Angela Carter's uh, The Bloody Chamber, you know, talks about um, all the tales that are told around the fireside. So that's your folk tales. That's your warning stories. Don't go off the path because if you do, you will be eaten by a wolf. You know, you may not have a red cloak on, but you will definitely be eaten by a wolf. This is your warning tale, whether you are a child or an adult. Um, so I think... I feel like I'm I'm making modern warning tales. I hope I am. <laughs> you you know uh, I I love the character uh, of Mirren in all the the murmuring bones. She's so great. She's really a strong character, but she's not uh, uh, the typical I think strong female character that you often find in a mystery or or even in a fantasy novel. So talk about creating her voice because her voice is a delight to read, which makes a big difference when you're reading the book. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. That's good to hear. Um, I, I just, I imagined a girl who'd been brought up in this, this house, this house which is crumbling, but... Um, but the people within it, specifically her grandparents who, who bring her up, still maintain the idea of their days of great wealth and influence, even though they are hugely diminished. Um, um, and in some ways, you know, Mirren's been taught to be very obedient, but in other ways... I thought that she was probably someone who managed to gather together the bits of her own independence. And we, we sort of get to a point in her life, so she's 18 when everything starts to kick off, and she is very determined about what she does not want. And this is the point at which she digs her heels in. Um, so I sort of... I wanted her to have a to have learned things particularly from her grandmother Aoife that she could use so even though Aoife was you know trying to mold her into a particular shape what Mirren chose to do was pick the bits of those lessons that worked for her and discard the rest of them so she's an unusually independent character she is ruthless. She definitely got that from her grandmother. Um, but she's got uh, also, I think, a degree of care for the people around her and who are uh, who come under her under her influence. <clears throat> so, and again, it's another one of those stories about created family and and found family. Uh, what you do. So I, yeah, I always had in my head that, you know, she was someone who knew what she didn't want. It was less that she knew what she wanted. It was more that she knew what she didn't want. So she was going to uh, keep going until she found something that 
that filled in, you know, that that blank. You know, I think that's a really interesting observation. And I think that actually most of us end up living our lives that way in that, in a sense, we all want, you know, great riches and to be comfortable and live in a big house or, you know, whatever. But for 99.9% of us, that's just not going to happen. No. no. And so, <laughs> so you live your life less thinking about what you want, but thinking about, well, what I don't want is for, <laughs> for my, the electricity to be turned off. Exactly. So I'd never thought about that, but but with that sentence, you've tapped into a, a really interesting perspective that is not generally thought about, but that, yes, we do live our lives to trying to avoid the bad stuff more than, <laughs> than because that's something we can actually have some amount of influence in. Yeah, we, we like to think we can, you know, that you can dodge something. <laughs> But I, uh, I didn't, I didn't want her to be an angry character, you know. And and I have no problem with angry characters. I've written quite a few of them. Uh, but I, I, I just wanted her to be someone who was uh, finding a place where she could rest and think about what she wanted, you know, and the place that she had chosen rather than what was imposed upon her. Um, and she's just very determined, I think. You know, one of the things that, that also often bothers me that, you know, has been infection from the uh, video and, and movie world is the concept of the, quote, big bad which is more like the big boring, generally. <laughs> I, I, you know, there, there's only so many times you need to see somebody twiddling their mustache and say, <laughs> Mr. Bond, these lasers will cut you into pieces. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I'm very sorry. <laughs> they will not cut you into pieces. <laughs> so, I, 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 talk about... Tattoo you had, so. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Bond, we will be removing all of your tattoos. <laughs> exactly. That just ruined the Bond movie. So. <laughs> uh, well, that's not hard. Uh, uh, um, so talk about you, but your characters have antagonists, and and I think one of the things that's nice is that. Your antagonists always think, you know, pretty much think they're doing the right thing. I'm pretty much convinced that, you know, they're the good guys. Yeah. Um, look, uh, many years ago, someone said to me, a monster doesn't think they're a monster, uh, which I take issue with. Um, I think they do know that they're monstrous. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you see the fifth element with Gary... Carrie Oldman's character of Zorg, you know, and the priest saying to him, you're a monster. And he says, I know. Um, I think, yes, that's a monster knows. But what a monster is interested in is their own wishes and wants. And they privilege that above everybody else's. Uh, they don't necessarily think it's a good thing, um, but it's what they want. 
So that's what they're going for. Um, I think with the antagonist in All the Murmuring Bones, he has the things that he wants and thinks he needs because he's done a range of things that have put him into a bad position. So it's self-preservation rather than you know, saying, oh, you know, fair cop, I, I screwed up. I have, you know, I am the total sum of my bad decisions and I just need to suck it up and bear the consequences. He's still scrambling to get out and he doesn't really care who he sacrifices to to pay his bill, you know, to pay his debt. Uh, and I think... And I, th I think sometimes some of my antagonists are not necessarily actively evil, but uh, actively selfish. Um, yeah, much more common. <laughs> yeah, much more common. And I, I think that's possibly, uh, you know, actually quite common in the world it, mm -hmm. is that, you know, it's it's just selfishness that... that people sort of go oh no i want i want i want i want rather than you know what? i don't need 14 cars i don't need everything that i have i only have it because i can have it and it gives me status what i could be doing with this money is well, i don't know putting orphan children through school <laughs> no. uh, with your one million dollars Exactly. Um, so, but the, the, and the other thing, and I, I emphasise this with, with students, uh, which is why I had a good laugh when you said, you know, the moustache twirling, uh, is that if you have put all this time into crafting an amazing protagonist that that the reader wants to follow, that they, they fall in love with or they fall in loathe with, but they're still really interested and engaged by them and they want to follow them through the story. And the readers are bitterly, bitterly angry when the story ends. Um, <laughs> then, then you've done your job. But if you have gone to all that trouble, then don't, don't half-ass it on, the, on your antagonist. Don't just make them the moustache-twirling villain, you know. Oh, I am doing this because... I have a black hat and a moustache. Um, you know, give them... You have to put as much effort into your villains as you do your your heroes. Uh, yeah. And, and your supernatural creatures. I love... One of the things I think that... I have, when Jaws came out and Alien, you had creatures that were very frightening... But yeah. also had no character. They were they're just killing machines, and you you really don't give a hoot about them except see them blown up, uh, or you know blown out in yeah. space, whatever, whatever. And I think the characters of your supernatural creatures are just fantastic. I'm thinking of of the kelpie. So tell us what a kelpie is, <laughs> and how you just created such yeah. a genuinely wonderful <laughs> character out of something most of us have never heard of. Um, a Kelpie is, in uh, mainly Scottish mythology, um, a basically a horse, but it walk, walks on two legs and its feet are facing backwards. 
what it lives around, you know, lakes and rivers, um, ponds, streams. Uh, it's not a sea creature. Um, and it will offer travellers lifts, you know, across the stream, across the river. Uh, but unfortunately, what it will do is generally uh, then drown them the, me the minute it gets to the middle of the water course and then eat them. Which, you know, hey. guys got to live. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there's a, a whole range of, of myths about how they can be controlled. If you can put a, uh, a bridle over their head, then you can order it about. You can you can bind it. Um, uh, what I I wanted, but I thought, well, it, it, what's what's the point of making him a uh, you know, a ravening creature that's just after his lunch. What if he's, what if he's got kind of a, a Hannibal level of charm? <laughs> so, <laughs> which which probably gives you the wrong the wrong idea. But um, but the the Kelpie in the story needs something from Mirren, and so he does a deal. Uh, and you know, the whole point with with fairy tale bargains is that. There's give and take. There's there's cost to someone and benefit. Uh, and if you break that, then there's another whole series of consequences that that roll off from there. Um, so I liked the idea that you know they they started out having a bargain uh, that was mutually beneficial, and it it sort of ended up in a kind of a casual friendship. Um, and he's yeah he's he's quite a particular sort of a a creature uh he's not he's not on the side of the angels but he's not entirely on the side of you know the devils he's uh he's on his own side which is the kelpie side um and i think he just wants to live his his best life <laughs> as a kelpie <laughs> well that that's like many of us and, and yes. again <laughs> Whether we're water-dwelling uh, ravenous beasts or or, or, or you know dull suburban <laughs> struggling to the grocery store and wearing a mask. Now, um, I, I wanted to also just take one minute and and point out that I mean one of the things I loved about your books was discovering them the Tartarus Press editions. It really yes. makes it the the editors of this world who find and discover and publish authors are, you know, unheralded heroes for readers. And, and this is certainly true of, of Ray and Rosie for, of Tartarus Press. And also the books they produce are Things of Beauty and Illustrated. And the illustrations are, are really key but they also i think inspire you as a writer as well definitely i am um, <clears throat> the the uh, sourdough the the hardcover limited edition the artwork was done by stephen j clark and it's amazing so oh, it's, it's that guy's great oh yes it, uh, it's incredible you know and it's and it's sort of the the the, the dough baby the sourdough baby that's that's part of you know part of that um story and that is beautiful uh when i was when i was writing the bitterwood bible 
my friend Kathleen Jennings, who's an illustrator and a, and a writer as well, um, I uh, the 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 some of the books that I remember most fondly from my childhood had illustrations. There were fairy stories with illustrations, like Rackham's, you know, Arthur Rackham's um, fairy stories. And I had said to her, would you be interested in doing some illustrations for this? So I, I had sort of a an image in my head of, of how I would really like this book um, to look. And it's it's probably bad form for a... It's definitely bad form for a writer to organise their own artwork. <laughs> Publishers generally like to do that. Um, but I, I do love Kathleen's artwork and it felt very, it felt really right with, with Bitterwood. And so what she was doing was I would finish a story and hand it to her and she'd be reading it and sketching as she read, you know, whatever it, it sort of picked up. Um, images in her mind and we got to the end of it <clears throat> and um, and I sort of said to Ray and Roz, you know, uh, I, look, Kathleen's been doing these illustrations. I think they go really well. I would love to have her do the cover art. Um, and they very kindly humoured me and we ended up with this. So, so it was all those freehand uh, casual illustrations that Kathleen had done as she was reading. So they're very, um, they're very immediate and, you know, and I, I love the, I just, I love how they look. I love how they look. Well, they fit and, perfectly with the immediacy of the vibe yes. of your writing. Um, yeah, yeah. Because they they are the product of an emotional reaction to your writing. Your writing is the product of an emotional reaction to a world that only you have access to, but yeah. is yeah. actually our world reborn into a way that allows you to organize it so that we can draw truth about our world that we could only yeah. realize by visiting yours. That's that's yeah, and that's a nice way of putting it. And I so and she'll you know she'll occasionally sort of say so. This dress, what are you seeing? And I'm like, oh, you know, if you could put a Renaissance top with a <laughs> with a Victoriana bottom skirt, that'd be great. You know, this sort of thing. And we um, and we ended up with one of my uh, one of my favourite covers out of that, which is um, the the one of the little sisters. Um, of St Florian from the Queen's Reach Citadel where all the books are kept um, and her sort of reading at a lectern uh, with with a light. Um, and then with the Tallow Wife, we, we did the same sort of thing. And on the cover, we've got a version of uh, Mercia who starts out in the Bitterwood Bible as the, the young scribe in uh, at St. Dymphna's School for Boys and Girls. She's there as a, as a spy um, to copy the book that the, the, um, the sisters, the Mayrick sisters, will not let out of their sight. So at night she's, uh, she's putting everyone to sleep and stealing into the library and copying this book, this, this poisonous Bible. So she sort of uh, comes back in the tallow wife uh, as... She's the, the the earl the earl king's queen. So she has gone into the under earth and rules beneath there. Uh, but she's come back up to the surface with a particular um, a 
particular mission, which is to find the character of Ella, who's stretched across these three books. Um, and we've we've sort of got her appearing as she appears in the in the end of the book as as the Earl Queen, uh, and I love it. I love it. You know, so they're so beautiful. It's a real indulgence for a writer to be able to choose their favourite artist and and say, you know, here are my words. Do a thing. <laughs> it works really well. Um, <laughs> I have to ask, uh, it seems to me that these could be uh, fairly easily adapted, especially because the short story form lends itself uh, to, to, you know, you could put some of the things might take two hours just for to tell one of your stories. Is there, have you uh, signed up anybody (laughs) to do that yet? I have not. I would love someone to do it. I, you know, I think that, um, again, as you say, because they're, they're short stories, they would make, you know, um, they would make a good series. Is you know, so Netflix, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> there you go. There's three books you can turn into. That's, that's three series. There's your content for you. Um, but, you know, it's it's quite a specific look as well. Uh, so I think you, you're going to need a big budget. Mm. Uh, it's not it's not going to be something that is easily or cheaply filmed and you no, would no. need someone who who loves it, who loves it. You know, like the, the people who are currently doing The Witcher, they all love it as well, you know. Um, so they're really... They're, they're really into it. So you would need someone who... Who loves these stories and is committed to to the aesthetic? Um, the new book by Angela Slatter is All the Murmuring Bones. It's the latest in the sourdough world stories. Thank you for joining me, Angela. You are welcome. Thank you for having me along, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.